Lesson 11 for December 6 to 12, Getting Ready for the Harvest. Sabbath afternoon, December 6. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we study your word for various reasons. One of the reasons we study is because in there we can find out what your will is for us. And as we do so this week, we pray that our minds may be clear, our hearts may be open to the infilling of your Holy Spirit, and that your word will speak to us in a way that will bless us and bless those around us. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is James chapter 5 and verse 8. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James 5 verse 8. In Greco-Roman times, as in some places still today, a flurry of activity preceded the coming of a visiting dignitary. Streets were cleared, shop windows cleaned, flowers planted, and crime prevention increased. Every effort was directed at making sure the place looked perfect when the official arrived. The Greek word parousia, which is used throughout the New Testament for Christ's coming, as well as in James 5, 7 and 8, is a technical expression for the arrival of a king or dignitary. If such preparations preceded the arrival of earthly rulers, should we not make every effort to make our hearts ready for the coming of our Lord and Saviour? But, how do we make such a preparation when we do not know of that day or hour, as it says in Matthew 24:36? What does it mean to be patient and to establish our hearts? How does this relate to the idea of the early and latter reign of James 5, verse 7? Though in the text for this week the context appears to be the end time, the basic message is so relevant to believers at any time Throughout our history, and even in our own lives now, we face trials and suffering that call for us to stand firm in the faith, as did the prophets of old. Sunday, December 7, Waiting for Rain Farmers are directly dependent on the weather for their livelihood. If the weather is too dry or too wet, too cold or too hot, their produce will be adversely affected. In drier countries such as Israel, the margin of safety is even less and the importance of plentiful rain at the proper times is significantly greater. Whether grown on a small family farm or a large estate, the crop and its subsequent value are directly dependent on rain. The early rain, which generally falls in October and November in the Northern Hemisphere, moistens the ground and prepares it for planting and germination. The latter rain, around March or April in the Northern Hemisphere, ripens the crops for harvest. Question. Read James chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the lowly and latter rain. 
compare Deuteronomy 11.14, Jeremiah 5.24, Jeremiah 14.22 and Joel 2.23, what point do the Old Testament passages make about the rain? Why do you think James uses this image in connection with the coming of the Lord? Well, the first one is Deuteronomy 11.14, Then I will give you rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine, and your oil. And Jeremiah 5.24, They do not say in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain, for both the former and the latter, in its season, he reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. In Jeremiah 14.22 Are there any among the idols of the nations that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? Therefore we will wait for you, since you have made all these. And Joel 2.23 be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain, in the first month. And we need to compare this with Hosea chapter 6 verses 1 to 3, and Joel chapter 2 verses 28 and 29. So first, Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Come, and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain, to the earth. And Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. From Our Father Cares, page 212, we read, Under the figure of the early and the latter rain that falls in eastern lands at seed time and harvest, the Hebrew prophets foretold the bestowal of spiritual grace in extraordinary measure upon God's church. The outpouring of the Spirit in the days of the Apostles was the beginning of the early or former rain, and glorious was the result. But near the close of earth's harvest, a special bestowal of spiritual grace is promised to prepare the church for the coming of the Son of Man. This outpouring of the Spirit is likened to the falling of the latter rain, and it is for this added power that Christians are to send their petitions to the Lord of harvest in the time of of the latter rain. And so Jesus refers to the harvest at the end of the world in Matthew thirteen thirty nine. Mark four twenty six to twenty nine presents a very similar picture to that of James five seven. The farmer waits for the grain to ripen, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Only at harvest time is it possible to distinguish the wheat from the tares, as we read in 
Matthew chapter 13 and verses 28 and 29. He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And Malachi chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them, as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So to finish the day, what should the fact that we can distinguish the wheat from the tares only at harvest time tell us about how we must live out our faith now before the harvest? Monday, December 8, How Near is Near James 5 verse 8 affirms that Christ's coming is at hand or near. But after nearly 2,000 years, how are we to understand this promise? Jesus described the coming kingdom in Matthew 4 verse 17. From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew 10 verse 7, and as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew 24 33, so you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near, at the doors, by means of parables to teach the unfamiliar heavenly things in terms that are understandable. A close study of these parables reveals that the kingdom has two aspects a present spiritual reality and a glorious reality still to come. All the apostles fixed their hope in the imminent coming of Jesus, as we read in Romans 13.11 and Hebrews 10.25 and James 5.9. Let's read those. First of all, Romans chapter 13 and verse 11. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And Hebrews 10.25, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And James 5.9, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. But they never identify exactly when it would be. Like us, they wanted to know when, but Jesus explained that this information was not best for them to know. In Acts 1, verses 6 and 7, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. 
After all, how zealous would they be in sharing the gospel with the world had they known that the work would not be finished for almost two thousand years and counting? Question. What does James mean when he says, Establish your hearts, in 5 verse 8? You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And why do you think the awaited fruit is called precious, or timios, in verse 7? Well, let's read verse 7. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. And we're also asked to compare that with 1 Thessalonians 3.13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And 2 Thessalonians 3.3, But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And 1 Peter 1.19, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the word establish or sterizo means to fix firmly or strengthen. Our hearts are to be so wedded to the Lord that they cannot be moved, despite the pressures brought against them. Becoming settled in the truth, as it says in Second Peter one twelve, without temptation and enduring trials and suffering for our faith, as it says in Acts fourteen twenty two, all contribute to this work. Spiritual growth is a process that is not always easy, but that bears precious fruit. Believers redeemed by the precious or timious blood of Christ, as it says in First Peter one nineteen are of infinite value to the heavenly farmer. The word timios is also used to describe the precious stones that symbolize believers who are built on Christ, the foundation stone of God's spiritual temple, the church. Paul likens unstable believers, on the other hand, to wood, hay and straw that will not last and will ultimately be consumed by fire, when Christ comes. We read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. It is important, therefore, to ask ourselves on a regular basis whether our energies are really directed toward what we value most, toward what and who is most precious to us. So to finish today, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work, of what sort it is. 1 Corinthians 3.13 Look at your life. What sort of work is it? 
Tuesday, December 9. Crumbling, groaning, and growing. When is the second coming? Why are we still here? It's not surprising that now, in the 21st century, we have doubters and scoffers. In the history of the Church, this is nothing new. The most dangerous threats to Israel throughout its history came not from their enemies, but from within their own ranks and from within their own hearts. Likewise, as the coming of the Lord approaches, we have far more to fear from within than from without. The unbelief indulged, the doubts expressed, the darkness cherished, encourage the presence of evil angels and open the way for the accomplishment of Satan's devices, Ellen White wrote in Last Day Events, page 156. Question. Therefore, James 5.9 warns us, Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. What grudges or grumbles against others, or even against the church, have you had, and maybe at times with good cause, too? The question is, how have you handled them? With meekness, humility, and forgiveness, as you have been forgiven by God? Or by worldly standards? Be honest with yourself. Let's look at Luke. Chapter 7, verses 39 to 50. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed five hundred denarii, and the other fifty. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? Then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. From what we have read earlier in this epistle of James, it seems that there were serious challenges among the believers, including favoritism, chapter 2, verses 1 and 9, evil surmising, verse 4. Evil speaking toward one another, chapter 3, verses 10, and chapter 4, verse 11. Envy, chapter 3, verse 14. Quarrels, chapter 4, verse 1. And worldliness, chapter 4, verses 4 and 13 and 14. Consistently, James directs us to deep solutions to these problems. Faith. 
James 1, 3 and 6, the implanted word, verse 21, beholding the law of liberty, James 1, 25 and 2, 12, single-mindedness and godly wisdom, James 3, 13 and 17, grace, James 4 and verse 6, and clean hands and a pure heart, verse 8. He also insists that there be outward expressions of God's inward workings, as in James 2, verses 14 to 26, including visiting the afflicted and forgotten of James 1, 27, showing mercy in James 2, 13, and sowing peace rather than discord. Ultimately, we are accountable to God. The one to whom we must give account is the Lord who is the judge and who will give to everyone according to his or her work. So to finish today, as we wait for the Lord's return, what are positive ways you can encourage and uplift others? Why is it important that you do so? Wednesday, December 10, Models of Patient Endurance Question. Read James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. What did Job and the prophets have in common? Why do you think these examples are highlighted? What personal lessons can we take away from these stories for ourselves amid our own trials? Well, James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. The prophets of Israel were faithful in preaching the word of the Lord without altering or compromising it. Hebrews, in extolling the prophets' fidelity to God, paints a clear picture. They stopped the mouths of lions, that's Daniel, quenched the violence of fire, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, escaped the edge of the sword, Elijah and Elisha, had imprisonment, Jeremiah and Micaiah, stoned Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, sawn asunder, Isaiah, and slain with the sword. Of course, Job's sufferings are also proverbial, as is the patience he exemplified despite derision by his own wife and the censure of those who came to commiserate with him. What set these heroes of faith and many others apart from the normal or average follower of God? James mentions several qualities, patience, endurance, and above all, hope and trust in God. One of the attributes is patience, or in the Greek, makrothymius, also translated as long-suffering or forbearance. It refers to the capacity to stand up under difficult circumstances and trials, to weather whatever life or the devil throws at us. The prophets endured all their suffering for the word of God patiently, as we read above in James chapter 5, verse 10. This word is used frequently in the New Testament, including in a reference to Abraham waiting patiently during his many years of sojourning for God to fulfill his promise to give him a son. 
It also describes Jesus bearing up patiently through all his sufferings and death on the cross in 2 Peter chapter 3.15. Endurance, hypomene, on the other hand, focuses on the end goal of this process, looking forward to the finish line. Job is put forward as the epitome of this quality. Despite all he suffered, Job looked steadfastly toward the final vindication he expected to receive. Job 14, verses 13 to 15, Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. You shall call, and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. And Job chapter 19, verses 23 to 27. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. So, to finish the day, what are you struggling with now? What have you prayed for that has not yet come? How often have you ever felt a sense of hopelessness? Think through the trials of some of the Bible characters listed above or others. Imagine how helpless they must have felt at times. What can you draw from their suffering that could help you work through your own? Thursday, December 11, Transparent as Sunlight Read James chapter 5, verse 12 But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Commentators have puzzled over why James seems to make such a major issue out of swearing solemn oaths. Even if the intent were to prohibit all speech of this kind, why would it seem to be urged as important, above all, that he has spoken about in this chapter, or perhaps in the entire letter? Is it really that big an issue? We need to keep in mind what we have seen throughout our study of this epistle, that James is not content with a superficial faith or forms of religion. Despite the caricatures of him that we sometimes hear, James is thoroughly gospel-oriented, so much so that he sets standards too high for us to reach without God's forgiving and empowering grace. Our words reveal what is in our hearts, as in Matthew 12.34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The theology of James is permeated with the thinking of Jesus, who commanded us in Matthew 5.34 and 35, swear not at all. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
Some people apparently even placed the hairs of their head in pledge to guarantee their words. But Jesus said all of this was evil. As he said in Matthew 5.37, Let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Everything belongs to God, including every hair on our heads, even if in some cases there aren't many. So, there is nothing that we have a right to pledge, as if it were our own, for the fulfilment of our word. From the Thoughts of the Mount of Blessing, this short little extract, everything that Christians do should be as transparent as the sunlight. Truth is of God. Deception, in every one of its myriad forms, is of Satan. Clearly, Christ was not prohibiting judicial oaths, because he himself, when placed under oath by the high priest, did not refuse to answer, nor did he even condemn the process, despite numerous deviations from sound jurisprudence in Matthew 26. Several things need to be kept in mind when speaking the truth. First and foremost being that we seldom even know all the truth, even about ourselves, and so we must be humble. Second, when we do speak the truth, it should always be spoken in love and for the edification of those who hear. So to finish today, read Ephesians 4:15 and 29 and Colossians 4 and verse 6. Well, let's do that. Dwell prayerfully on the powerful messages of these texts. Think how different and better your life would be were you, through God's grace, to strictly follow these admonitions. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. And Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And Colossians 4 verse 6, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Friday, December 12. From the book Prophets and Kings, page 174 and 175, to wait patiently, to trust when everything seems dark, is the lesson that the leaders in God's work need to learn. Heaven will not fail them in their day of adversity. Nothing is apparently more helpless, yet really more invincible, than the soul that feels its nothingness and relies wholly on God. Trials will come, but go forward. This will strengthen your faith and fit you for service. The records of sacred history are written not merely that we may read and wonder, but that the same faith which wrought in God's servants of old may work in us. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, we all know the parable about the wheat and tares growing together until the harvest in Matthew 13. But what does that mean in terms of church discipline? What does that mean in terms of dealing with outright rebellion or apostasy in our ranks? Are we just to sit by and do nothing, saying that it will all be taken care of when the Lord returns? Obviously not. How, in light of this parable, 
but also in light of examples in which discipline was needed in the early church, such as in Corinthians and Galatians, are we to deal with the tares, especially those whose sole purpose seems to be choking the wheat and nothing else. Two, temptations and trials come to all of us. What promises from the Bible and the writings of Ellen White have been comforting to you and have helped you to persevere in your faith? What Bible characters have been most meaningful to you in difficulties and or in view of what lies ahead? 3. James tells us in chapter 5 verse 9, Grudge not one against another, yet people, even other Christians, can do things that bother and annoy us. How can we learn to love, to forgive, to endure, and to rise above many of the petty things in life that can make us moody, irritable, and really bad witnesses? Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled Trail of Death Part 2, and I guess you've been waiting to hear how it ends. Joel realized it was Sabbath. His parents would be in church praying for him. In the midst of the chaos in the house and outside, Joel knelt in a corner and prayed. He was sure that death was near. He opened the New Testament to the book of Psalms and began reading. Joel again prayed, Lord, you rescued David from his enemies. If you get me out of this situation alive, I will give you my life and tell others what you have done for me. Please save me, God. One of the locals saw Joel praying and reading his book. He thought Joel was performing some sort of witchcraft and became frightened. Meanwhile, the youth searching for a way to convince their captors that they were not guilty one of them remembered the name of the man on whose property they had slept the night before. He told the guard at the door the man's name. Please find him. He will tell you where we were last night. Soon the men returned with the man who verified their story. The youths were set free. One man told Joel, We would have killed you hours ago, but when we saw you kneeling in the corner doing magic, we became afraid. Joel was confused. Then he realized that God had used his tears of repentance and his Bible reading to strike fear in the men's hearts and eventually set them free. The youths left the village, but they were later caught by Mexican authorities and returned to the border of Guatemala. When Joel arrived home, he told his parents what had happened. On the day he was captured, his mother said she sensed a special need and had prayed in earnest for him. That night, Joel lay awake. He couldn't believe he had survived. He remembered other times he should have died, but had been rescued. He knew God had been by his side, even when he rejected God's influence. Joel kept his promise to God and returned to church. He shared his testimony with the church and asked for forgiveness. He soon was baptized. Although he didn't go back to his gang, he did meet some gang members from time to time. When they commented on how he had changed, Joel shared how Christ had saved his life and set him free from drugs, hatred, and Satan's hold. 
Now he leads a small group in his church and serves as a deacon. He loves to give Bible studies and to share his testimony. One thing I wish I could change, Joel says, I wish I could take off the tattoos that mark my body. But when Jesus comes, he will make my body new and pure and clean. I regret the years I wasted honouring Satan instead of Christ. I want to spend the rest of my life redeeming that time and influencing others to turn to Jesus, who saved my life more than once. He turned my life around, totally around. Joel Sandoval lives with his parents in northern Honduras. He is working in a clothing factory and spends his free time sharing his faith with others. Your reader this week has been Dr. Percy Harold. The lessons have been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember that God is always faithful.